I'll be reading Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, instructive, gospel-unfolding word to our minds, to our hearts, to our affections. Father, we thank you for the beauty of this text. And I beg that I don't wreck it in any way but say it and repeat it again and again in differing words from different angles that we grasp <laughs> the beauty of such a great salvation. Do it for the sake of your children in your glory. Through Jesus Christ, amen. This passage here this morning is going to lead us to the communion table. For those of us who believe and to confirm that with baptism. In other words, communion with each other, with our Lord Jesus, our forerunner, our captain, our trailblazer, our founder. We're going to partake of the bread and the cup representing Jesus's human body and soul that suffered like one of us identified with us in His suffering. We, in eating and drinking with Him, are family. He is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, us sinners. That's where it's going. All right, so... I just read the text, and hmm, I think if anyone was paying attention closely to what I just read, you, you noticed a strange statement, maybe seemingly on the surface, there at the end of verse 10. 
Jesus was made perfect through suffering. So we're going to get there. But, but we must grab the, the flow of verse 10 in its context in order to see what he's getting at, what he means by those words. So just because every week as we move through the book of Hebrews, we jump to the next clause or the next sentence or the next paragraph, it doesn't mean that then that Sunday morning what we have is isolated like an island. There has been a stream of thought going on, which carries into verse 10, which at the core is going back to the first three verses. Summarized, this is it. This is what verse 10 is about. It's what this whole section is about. The great salvation that he's been unfolding. The great salvation that we are not to neglect. And that's what he's talking about then in verses 5 to 9, as we have seen over the last couple weeks, where he has told us that one day, David's psalm, Psalm 8, will be fulfilled when mankind rules over all the creation. They will be crowned with glory and with honor. But this future destiny, has not happened yet. That's what he says at the verse, end of verse 8. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to mankind. Instead of having everything in subjection to us, his point is we human beings still suffer. And we die. And that death is still our great enemy. So how are we ever going to come into the promise of Psalm 8? That's what he goes on to answer beginning in verse 9. And the answer is that the creator of the universe... The very image of God, the, the very glory of God Himself, this is all in chapter 1, Jesus Himself came into creation as a human being, just like us, from one source, all coming through Adam and Eve whom God created. That's why he's not ashamed to call us his brothers, as a fellow human being. And the point he did this in our text as the forerunner, the leader, the captain, in order to what? lead a new redeemed humanity into glory, into the glory of Psalm 8. And he does it through his suffering and death. Pick up the end of verse 8. At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to man, but we see Him 
who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. It's what we see right now as we still suffer and die. The creation has not yet been subjugated to us, but dominates us. But, his point is, Jesus, He came. He became one of us, a human being. And he is broken through in his own human experience. Through, not around, but through suffering and his own human death. And he then conquered death by his resurrection from the dead. And he is seated and Psalm 8, the crown of glory is upon Him as our forerunner, our leader, our captain, our, our champion that has blazed the trail and opened it up for all of those who are His who will one day be there with Him. The fulfillment of Psalm 8. He is the archegon. That's the word that's translated founder here or captain in other translations or leader. He's the trailblazer. So hear it again. Verse 10, for it was fitting that he, that's God, for whom and by whom all things exist, that's God, fitting that God in bringing many sons to glory, they should make the trailblazer of their salvation, perfect through suffering. The glory that we are all being led into is the glory of Psalm 8 that he just quoted in verses 7 and 8. You have crowned man with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. But because of the rebellion in the Garden of Eden, we all, humanity, has fallen away from that glory. And that's the context of this great salvation, rescue from that into the promise of Psalm 8. So summary, Jesus promised for centuries has come. That is the founder, the trailblazer of our salvation by becoming a human being and by living throughout His life and suffering and dying. And having been raised from the dead, and he enters into that glory as the first human being, raised to human immortality. 
now. Got that? Okay, here's the question. Why? The answer in the text of why all of that is so that he may lead many into glory. The promise of Psalm 8 will be fulfilled because it has already been fulfilled by a man, Jesus Christ, our forerunner, our founder. Okay, that's the context. As we now slowly read now in that context, verse Verse 9 ends with the words, Christ tasted death for all of us. Then verse 10 explains why this was fitting. It was the way to do it. It was right. For, that's what the four is there for, connecting it. Here, here it is. For, it was fitting that He, God, for whom and by whom all things exist, in His bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So, what was fitting, read the words, is this. Jesus should be made perfect. Through suffering. Now, on the surface, the words are clear. These sufferings of Jesus are the means by which God perfects His Son. Okay? That's where we're at now. Okay. What does that mean? That's the question. Does it mean that Jesus was flawed or somehow imperfect in his, his character, his being, his morality? In other words, does it mean he was somehow sinful and, and therefore somehow he was going to therefore be purified of the flaws or, or the sin through the fire of suffering? The answer from the writer himself to that question is no. He's saying, that's not at all what I mean. In fact, Jesus never sinned. He's clear in it. Just flip over a page to chapter 4, verse 15, where he writes, For we do not have a high priest, that's Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Or chapter 7, verse 26, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest like Jesus, who is holy, Innocent, not guilty, unstained, 
separated from sinners. It's his way of saying, not a sinner, but exalted above the heavens. In chapter 9, verse 14, he writes, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself, here's technical Bible terminology from the Old Testament, without blemish. There's no blemish. There's no sin. There's no unholiness that needs to be corrected or washed off and thus made perfect or right in that sense. So, then what does he mean by it was fitting for God in order to bring many sons to glory, it was fitting for Him to make the founder, the trailblazer, that is Jesus, perfect through suffering. Okay. Let me start first with one commentator on the book of Hebrews, Moises Silva. I commend it to you because I think, I think he's correct when he writes, quote, Being perfect through suffering means that at the time of Jesus being made lower than the angels for a time was for a reason. That is, to be perfected through suffering. That is, perfected in the sense of becoming qualified to be the means of salvation, which he was not before his appearance in human history. Read slow so you can think a little bit. One more commentator, Hewitt, writes, This does not mean that suffering cured Jesus Christ of moral faults. This was impossible, for He was without sin. The, the Greek word teleosai, it's one translated, made the word perfect, okay. Teleosai, it means to make adequate or completely effective. Apart from these sufferings, Christ would not have been completely effective in his role as representing and helping mortal man. End quote. Right. So, in other words, the person we're referring to, Jesus, our founder, in his eternal nature, divine nature, nature of God has always been holy and perfect and without sin and no incompletions in anything and in any way. There is no moral flaw in Jesus, His person, in His divine nature. Okay, the point of our text is saying that now for him to be qualified as the founder, the, the trailblazer, the forerunner of our salvation from sin, he has to experience the suffering of human beings and go through it 
the suffering that we all experience as a result of the sin of Adam, the fall of man. So to be, in other words, the perfect Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice substitute, He had to be Himself without sin, but He had to be truly one of us, which means to experience life as a human being in this fallen world. Jesus' suffering and death confirmed His perfect humanity, and it qualified Him as the founder the forerunner of our salvation. That's what he's saying. Now, to make it just, again, flip over to chapter 5 for a second. Listen now to the same author and how he says this in chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Although he, Jesus, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being here it is again and being made perfect he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him he, he has to be the founder, the source, the Savior. To get there, He's got to be made perfect in to, to be that, which means the perfect sacrifice. And He says what, what that is. Learning in His humanity obedience through what He suffers. See that? In those two verses, being made perfect means learning obedience through human suffering. In other words, the eternal second person of the Holy Trinity, He was never human before the womb of Mary. Now, in his humanity, his human nature, he's utterly dependent. Divine nature cannot be dependent. His human nature is. He's dependent on his mom for a while. He becomes a two-year-old. He's learned to walk. He's learning to talk. He's taught and he, he, he learned something the next day he didn't know the day before. He, he's learning the marks on pages in Hebrew and Aramaic. He learns to read. He develops as he grows. And you think you read the Bible a lot? I think he memorized it. I think the whole Hebrew... Scripture. So at 13, he confounds the scribes in the temple. He's been obeying. He'll continue to obey. 
And as you would constantly say, and you hear it through the book of John, uh, whatever I see my father doing, that's what I do. I obey. And you see it in the garden in his last hours. If there's any way, Father, to avoid that suffering. But there was no other way. And so he learns obedience through what he suffered. In other words, before this, the person, there's only one person, with now two distinct natures. Before this, our Savior that we love, that Peter loved, that person had never been tested as a human being in order to obey ever before his incarnation and then throughout his life step by step into suffering and obedience to his father and through that suffering he came out tested obedience the perfect sacrifice Remember how the Apostle Paul put it in Philippians 2? Though Jesus was in the form of God, He did not count His equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made Himself nothing by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, humanity, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Doesn't mean he was disobedient. He's experiencing obedience to God as a human being. By becoming obedient, now here, to the point of death. This is the suffering. Even the death on a cross experienced obedience through suffering. And so this, this proving himself obedient in his human nature was his being made perfect. Perfect sacrifice. So the writer says, now, back to verse 10 of our text. It was fitting. It makes sense. It's right. It's the way it had to be. It was fitting that Jesus attained this proven perfection through suffering. Okay. Now, why? Our text, an immediate context, gives us two reasons why that's fitting. The first reason, we saw it, but let's just bring it out. It's right there. The first reason why that's fitting is so that, or because he was to lead many sons to glory. Many Sinners to salvation of Psalm 8. See it right there in verse 10, that clause. In bringing many sons to glory, 
That's the reason here. It's the ground for Christ's sufferings. In other words, he's saying it, it was fitting that God should make Jesus perfect through suffering because He's leading many sons to glory. It is that suffering, as He will go on in this chapter to make clear, the high priest offering Himself, that makes Him the substitute, sacrifice that would erase our sins and our guilt and lead us to glory. In other words, He must succeed where Adam failed. The first Adam was our head. What he did doomed us all. The second Adam came. And he was tried in the furnace of suffering and proven, proven, always obedient. We, through our suffering, are never proven. Sinless! We're never proven to be shown in any way perfect. Instead, our sufferings often give us the grounds and the avenue in which to show our sin. Our impatience, our frustration, our murmuring and our complaining and our anger at God for His providence. So we're all doomed. We're doomed in this life to never be in our person perfected by our sufferings. Now, if that was just it, and that's all we knew, then, then we and all humanity would never again enter into Psalm 8's promise. But someone must come and rescue us out of that fallen state and lead us, many sons and daughters, to glory. And that someone is Jesus, the founder, the trailblazer of our salvation. As he writes in chapter 4, we do not have a high priest who is unable to get it or to, to sympathize with our weaknesses, this world, cancer, relational problems, betrayals, and everything else in this seemingly God-forsaken existence. No, no, no. He, 
He, he's not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who in every way, every respect, has been tempted as we are. Yet, without sin. So Jesus, our representative, the second Adam, the second representative in his humanity, always obeyed when tested. Oh, he got hungry. <laughs> oh my gosh, I think I'm going to not eat until that time today. Look how strong I am. Gosh, I fell a lot. Ten minutes later, I'm just, I can't take it. Even my own discipline, I'm just talking about discipline. He was hungry after 40 days. Turn that rock into bread and eat. What's he going to do? Well, he's internalized the books of Moses. The word of his father. I'm a man, I'm a human being, and man shall not live by bread alone. And my father doesn't say, do that and eat. I'm not doing it. He knows what it is to be thirsty and tired and sleepy and having enemies and friends deny you. Those who betray you. He knows what it is to be scourged and to go through torture of Roman crucifixion. So he is the fitting founder and forerunner and leader to glory because he's that unblemished lamb who happens to be the eternal second person of the Trinity. And God upheld his glory by saying to purchase these sons and daughters, it'll take that in true humanity of my son. That's the first reason to lead many sons to glory. The second reason in the text of why it is fitting that Christ lead many sons to glory, etc., is for the sake of Jesus our Savior identifying with It was God's purpose to create a family that's headed by a human being who is his eternal son. It's his purpose to create a unified family of children with Jesus. who he is in one sense, at essence, different from us because he's the eternal God. But I get confidence to say this because of what I read here in the text. If all of the brothers and sisters in that family experienced suffering, except for one, then that camaraderie and unity 
and identification would be destroyed. So what he is saying is that because he is leading many sons to glory, out of suffering and out of death, therefore it was fitting for the sake of unity and empathy that Jesus become human and lead many sons to glory through his own suffering and death. It's right there in the connection between verses 9 and 10. Verse 10 says, because God is bringing many sons to glory, therefore it's fitting for God to do it through the suffering of His Son. And then verse 11 gives a reason for that. For why it's fitting. That's why verse 11 begins with the word for, gar in the Greek. For he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that's the sons being led to glory, all have one, or all are literally in the Greek, all are of one. Okay, they add the word source or origin or one what? We all, even him through Mary, comes through Adam. We all have one source. It's the context. He's one of, of us. It's referring to his human nature. So I'm sorry, I just, let me just read it again. For, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That's why he's not ashamed to call them, the ones being led to glory, brothers. He's one of us. Saying, I will tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Behold, I and the children God has given me. Because he is to come and be one of us and identify with us as a fellow human being being now forever. That's why it was fitting that he do all this through the perfection of his human obedience in his own human suffering and death. Let me just, again, paraphrase it, and then we're going to come to the close. Let me paraphrase what, 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 in other words, what he just said here in verse 10, 11. I'm going to flip it around by going to verse 11 first. Look. Because Jesus the Savior and those who are being saved by Him are all of one family. Therefore, our big brother is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. Therefore, now you go back to verse 10, that's the logic. Therefore, it was fitting that the Father should give us such a Savior who's our older brother to lead us to glory. That is one who can identify with us as suffering and dying human beings. And that's why he ends. We didn't get there yet. We're gonna, this is so much in this end of chapter 2. But the very last verse of chapter 2 in that large paragraph ends this way. For because Jesus Himself 
has suffered when tempted. He's able to help those who are being tempted. So let's take that into the bread and the cup this morning. So here's the communion meditation as I'm closing this sermon right now. Bring it in there. Don't neglect this great salvation. Let yourself think on what you have just heard in this text and meditate on it. And so not just this morning, but throughout your Christian life, it's calling us to feel your pain, your pains, your fears, your setbacks, your butterflies, no matter what's going on in your life and relationship or family or health, in your belly, to meditate on all of your suffering in the context of this text. That's when you find yourself beginning to murmur. Murmur against God because of His providence of what's happening in your life not going the way you think it should go, or real deeper suffering, remember, here's the point, Jesus, your big brother, suffered in all things under God's sovereign. Notice the text says in verse 10, it was fitting that God do this. Though he never used the Greek word theos, God. He never used English God. He used the pronoun. And then he says, let me define God I'm talking about. For it was fitting that he, here, comma, for whom and by whom all things exist, that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Why? The answer is to show that all of Christ's sufferings did not happen by chance. But they were controlled by the sovereign hand of the Father. That's what he means. By him and for him, everything exists. That's God. The sufferings of Christ did not happen by accident. They did not hinder God's plan. They fulfilled God's plan as Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The Father willed that Christ suffer horrendously because He purposed to create a family that was so united, deeply interwoven in, in empathy with one another and particularly with our King and our Savior. Nothing is between us 
that we could ever say, but you don't understand me or this. He's calling us to say, no matter what hell any of those being led to glory may go through, He knows. We are to prayerfully relate to Him that way. So, we're going to be passing out the cup and the bread, and as we pray over together, just take whatever you have in it as we're going to eat and drink it one another and with our Lord and Savior, representing His identification in suffering with us. This is why the writer will call us in chapter 12. You know it. Verses 1 to 3, this way. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the torture of the cross. Despising the shame. And he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Why? So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Oh, as we come to the bread in the cup, it represents to us that it was fitting that Jesus be shown perfect. The perfect sacrifice through what he suffered. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son, whom you did not spare, but you did deliver him up for all of us who love him as Peter does, a fellow broken, sinful man. You are good.